My name is Jenna. I wish I could tell you my whole name, because that would mean I was a nice, normal girl. But I'm not either one. Not nice. Not normal. In fact, I'm a podcaster. Thank you for joining us this week on The Fandalites. This book is book 29, The Sickness. The Animorphs attend a school dance, which is going about as well as expected when Axe starts demorphing, having been struck with a mysterious flu. As they try to keep him under wraps, they are confronted by a controller teacher named Tidwell, who knows their secret because he's friends with Aftran, the Yerk Cassie bargained with back in book 19. Aftran has been captured and is due to be interrogated by Visor 3, which will end the budding Yurk resistance movement. Each of the Animorphs is brought down by the mysterious flu, but only Axe's life is in danger. He needs brain surgery to remove a swollen gland, but Cassie doesn't know where in his brain to operate, and time is ticking down. Cassie Morse Tidwell's Yurk enters the Yurk pool in Tidwell solo to complete the daring rescue of Aftran and returns in time to put Aftran in Axe's mind and find where the swollen gland is and successfully perform brain surgery on him. Aftran is given the power to morph and then traps themselves in whale morph to live their life out at sea. This book had a had a lot going on. I think it was pretty action-packed. I gotta say, Jenna, having read this, I'm down with the sickness. You mother... Get up. I'm down with the sickness. This is my favorite Cassie book now. I'm glad you got that reference out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was a really, really well-written book. I I thought it was one of the most engaging of the book so far. Like, I kept wanting to come back and read more and more and more. Well, I think what I kind of realized while I was reading this uh, is that when things are the, like, ragtag group of guerrilla warriors trying to forestall the yurks until the andalites can come and save the day uh i really love that and when it's elevists and time travel loops and cosmic struggles i'm less engaged me too and i think i've been saying that for for the last couple books which has been a lot of that so to get back into the roots of having to go back into the Yerk Pool for a Yerk Pool mission uh, was really engaging again. So this was uh, this is one of the ghostwritten books. This was written by Melinda Metz, who also wrote number 34. She's at Two-Headed Writer on Twitter, although she shares that account with her writing partner. Uh, and her website is melindaandlaura.com. She uh, wrote the young adult series Roswell High that the WB show Roswell was based on. Hmm. So that's that's peak 90s. Yeah. Uh, her latest novel is titled Talk to the Paw. Oh. Yeah, I thought this was a really, really well-written book. I, it set Because it, it immediately sets up this tension for Cassie where she has to save Aftran because if she doesn't, Visor 3 is going to learn about the Andalites and, or the Animorphs and learn about the Yurk Resistance Movement probably crushing it immediately before it can really get going. But also, Axe's life is increasingly in danger because of this swollen gland in his brain. Yeah, And neither he... of those has an easy solution, but they both are very important. Right, right. Because very early on, Axe comes down with 
alien brain appendicitis and it is rapid onset. And then I love that all the other Animorphs start like falling victim to it, which I was worried at first when Jake got sick because he doesn't even have a tree of gland. So who hey. knows how the Yamthut is going to affect him. But uh, apparently Delirious Axe reassures them that uh, they're, it's, they're just going to get like a normal flu from his weird alien bacteria colony. That was also like a great mechanic in this book to slowly strip away the support sort of Cassie has with the Animorphs is like just one by one, they keep dropping until it's just her. Yeah, it really tightened the screws. And I think, I mean, part of that probably has to do with the fact that it just makes like a really page turning banger of a book. Uh, and mm. part of it probably is that we've seen that the series likes to show Cassie uh, being the one alone humanizing the Yerks. Hmm. I mean, you see, even even when Aftran helps to save Axe's life, he his immediate reaction is, oh my god, get her the fuck out of my head, filthy yerk. Yeah. Uh, and Cassie's like, bro, chill. She uh, is leading the yerk peace movement, which, holy shit, I love that there's a yerk resistance. God, me too. That really underlies a lot of the things that we've said about the yerks being sort of a death cult and how they're... Now now they have this outside influence of Aftran via Cassie sort of nudging them towards other options. That's so good. Mm, and I love that it's the, the Yerk that Cassie made a bond with that started it. Aftran, who was born into the death cult branch of Yerk civilization that is what most of the galaxy gets to see now that the rest of them are embargoed in on their planet. And Cassie shows her like, hey, you know, the stuff that you've grown up with is not necessarily all there is and that causes her to really like go back and spread the message like hey guys this isn't great there's there's got to be a better way yeah i also appreciate that aftran didn't seem to be upset with cassie i i was worried that once word got back about cassie still being out there in human that maybe aftran would feel betrayed but that does not seem to be the case which i'm i'm relieved about i thought that there was something um I thought there was something at the end of that book where she somehow learned from the the little girl that was the host that Aftran knew, that Aftran figured it out, that, that she'd escaped and was happy that she didn't have to live that way. Oh, that might be the case, yeah. Because that's why Tidwell would have tried to make contact with Cassie in the first place. Yeah, I, either way, it's not all that important, but I, I really liked... So the, the cover of this book is Cassie morphing a yerk because she does that in this book. Buckwild. That's, yeah, I, I'm actually surprised. I guess they haven't had a lot of opportunities to acquire yerks, but it really feels like if they did, that could be a big problem solver a lot of times. Because hmm. the, the filter, the, the Gleet biofilter is in the entrance to the yerk pools is set to human Human and Yerk, I think, yeah. biology. So that could really solve a lot of problems if they have a Yerk morph that they can just sort of squiggle through on. <laughs> I don't know. It seems like to effectively make it through uh, and down to the Yerk pool, they would either have to infest each other. So like half of them go Yerk and half of them play host, in which case they're exposing the real faces, or they'd have to like take over people. because. The descriptions that we get of, of Cassie's experience as a Yurk does not seem 
like she's very well able to navigate a non-aquatic environment. Yeah, the fact that the Yurks basically need to be in some sort of moisture to survive is good, interesting information. But I don't, you don't, I to get through the filter, you don't necessarily, I guess this is something that's confused me. You don't have to be in the brain to get through the filter. I don't think the filter is looking at position. I don't even see any reason why they couldn't just walk down as humans other than there might be something that says... Like, there might be something with a filter that's looking for both DNA. So just a human couldn't get through, but a human and a yerk could. So, no, I, I, I'm i pretty sure that it's set to, to human and yerk DNA. And honestly, like, there's the possibility that they've keyed all of their specific yerks and controllers to the Gleep biofilter. But I cannot imagine the yerk IT people, like, not pitching a fit when that amount of routine maintenance and updating of their system is required. So yeah. I imagine that they just set it to Yerk and human, because like if a human comes down, they're going to get infested. There's there's no way that they're not going to get infested unless they can morph. And yeah. uh, if a Yerk goes through not being in a host, who, who cares? Like, weird, how did that happen? But who cares? Yeah, I guess we don't know enough about how the filters are operating. I guess. Say. I guess that one of them could do the Hork-Bajir morph and carry the rest of them through in a Ziploc. Anyway, it's just, I'm glad that they at least have a Yerk morph now in case that comes up. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that things turned out okay for Aftran. I'm, I'm glad that they came up with a solution that didn't end up with her starving to death. Yes, I did too, although I was a little confused about why they didn't just have her be in a chi, because the chi keep the Yerks alive within them. Yeah, I think maybe because then it would have been sort of like a reverse yurking where she doesn't have any control and is just riding around. It's possible that she could have built her like a Krang style android body uh, <laughs> and then have her piloted around. But honestly, it seems like Aftran was pretty happy to just get away from this entire conflict and go live as a creature that's not involved in it. Yeah, I think it... It, that's not a bad solution. I think it's a good creative solution. It just seems like such a waste that they had this ally who has a, probably a pretty good understanding of the Yurk inner culture, maybe as much or more than the Chi do, and they're, she's just sort of on her way. Like, it just seems like a waste of a good ally. Yeah, but, I mean, the Animorphs haven't exactly been savvy about hanging on to in, intel assets in the past. That's true. That's true. And I'm glad we got confirmation that the Morph Cube is still around and functioning. Right. They've got it. They're just understandably a little hesitant to use anyone else after the last time. Yeah, this was a good this was a good way of using it. Um, so this was a really man, like there was just a lot in this book that I loved. There was a part at the yeah. beginning where Cassie was convincing the rest of them that they need to rescue Aftran. And Rachel was like mad at her because, well, she only knows this shit because someone made a unilateral decision to like let her into their head. Mm. But Rachel, fuck off because Cassie like bonding with Aftran has probably had a bigger impact on the conflict than all of the, the missions that the Animorphs have gone on put together. Because mostly the Animorphs are doing reactive stuff. They are yeah. keeping the tide from, from overrunning them entirely. They're jamming fingers and fists in the dike 
to, to keep the, the water from flooding everywhere. But they're not really making progress in ending the war. The Yerk Peace Movement, though, that's something that if, if it gets big enough, if they manage to accomplish something, like that could actually end the conflict. Yeah, it, it will definitely have, I think, a more longer term impact than their, again, kind of sad little missions have necessarily been having. It's we. I mean, it's not weird. It's it's funny that the rest of them, that, that Cassie's the only one who really recognizes the hearts and minds uh, strategy to try and like <laughs> make common cause with the people on the other side that aren't just unconvincible. Yeah, let's let's talk about Tidwell. Oh man, Tidwell, Mister Tidwell, and I don't mean Ilum, the year that's writing him, although him too. But Mister Tidwell is a real badass, actually. <laughs> yeah, explain explain what you mean by that, Brent. So he was an involuntary controller, right? And Ilum had enslaved him, and when he, when Ilum decided, like when he was convinced by the Yerk Peace Movement that this is wrong, that he's a slaveholder and that's not right, and he was going to free Mr. Tidwell, Mr. Tidwell said, look, if you stay in me, we can we can work together and like actually do good. He voluntarily submits to not being able to control himself most of the time because he's trying to save the world. Well, we don't necessarily know how, like what percentage of control they're sharing. That's, and that's we, fair. We, and we don't have a full enough really idea of how the Yerk mechanism operates. So it's really hard to say whether or not, like, the Yerk is getting sensory information while they're not actively controlling the body. Because if you can just have that little, like, a little parrot riding in your brain, that might be an okay solution. Well, that's true. And they, and they do seem to have made pretty good friends, despite, you know, Ilum starting as uh, Tidwell's master. Yeah, and I thought that was a really interesting angle on their relationship as well, because they, they it, both of them, I guess, take their turns describing their sort of situation. And Tidwell's, I think he, was he get divorced while he was controlled or was it just before? His wife died. Oh, his wife died. That's what it was. His wife died. And then we see through his memories when Cassie's in, inadvertently reading them uh, when she's yeah. morphed Ilum that he went into the same sort of depressive spiral as Marco's dad. And that Ilum was sort of a comfort? Not not the being taken over and not having to live your life, although I'm going to assume probably that a little bit too. Um, but just having somebody there to talk with, which is really interesting and sad, but also very human and sweet. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it, it sounds like, to hear Ilum tell it, it sounds like Mr. Tidwell, when he was first taken over, was, like, screaming and, and rattling the bars of his cage constantly. But after he became a voluntary subversive controller, they just, he had someone there to talk to, he wasn't completely alone, because he has nobody in his life to hear Mr. Tidwell tell it. He has no reason to keep going, really. I was, I wished that they had reached out to the animorph sooner yes uh I, I yeah like i wish that they were making allies and i worry that we're not gonna see tidwell again 
Or if we do, it won't be for another like 15 books or something when we reach the end game. But this is such a good resource and they should be making friends. The, the wild thing is, I mean, we know the reason they don't. Because even having Tidwell and Ilum know is a liability. They're terrified that even this, like how many, how many Yerks in the peace movement know that the Andalite bandits, well, okay, actually, well, that segues very good. <laughs> that segues very well into, uh, into another topic. Yeah. All of the Yerks fucking know. All of Every, the Yerks they fucking all know. know. All of them, but Visor 3 know. That's like been our canon, uh, our more canon than canon for a while, but I'm pretty sure this book literally confirms it because Cassie demorphs at the bottom of the Yerk pool and... Like, based on her descriptions of being able to sort of sense things with electrical sonar previously in the book, all of the Yerks in that pool know that they just saw a Yerk turn into a human and then turn into something else. Yeah, it seems really likely, especially given the hijinks with getting Aftran at, like, because Aftran's in a little Yerk cage in the pool and then gets removed for interrogation. And then Cassie morphs infects a human host in order to break her free and dumps them both in the same pool. And despite all of the uh, back and forth and struggle, the very, very good and engaging struggle, uh, Aftran manages to find her way into Cassie's seagull claws and they fly off. I was really worried that the yerk that seagull Cassie flew off with would not be Aftran. Because no, no. she doesn't really, she doesn't really check before just putting Aftran in Axe, and I was concerned that was going to go a different way. But also, the book was almost over, so I assumed it wouldn't be anything too dramatic. I mean, she did private thought speak to Aftran, but Aftran had no way of communicating back. That's true. So if it hadn't been Aftran, so so there's clearly some way that the Yerks are seeing. I mean, it's the electric, like it's the sonar that we know of. But it, it's interesting that, you I mean, you make a good point. They all have to know, if Aftran was able to find Seagull Cassie in a big old pool of yurks, every other yurk in there knows. They all know. We pretty much have confirmation now that all of the rank-and-file yurks know that the quote-unquote Andalite bandits are humans, but they're all terrified to tell Visser 3 because they know they'll just get murdered because he doesn't like to hear things that he doesn't believe or doesn't enjoy hearing. Yeah, which is, again, that's canon canon. Like, he just does not, he just does not take that information well. It's really good. It's a really good thing that there isn't a more competent Visser in charge of the Earth invasion, or this might turn out differently. Yeah, you know, which actually leads a question, because Visser 3, as we know, is obsessed with Andalites. Mm -hmm. And wants to be near them, and wants to be in them, in their bodies, and everything about that. So, I... It, that kind of makes me wonder how we ended up in charge of the human Earth invasion. Because they are, they're still actively battling the Andalites, and that's probably where Visor 3 wants to be. So I wonder what he, what did he, what did he do to get stuck on the Earth invasion? I'm not sure that I 100% agree that Visor 3 doesn't want to be spearheading Earth, because it's a, it's a big get for him. He seems so unhappy, though. Their initial plan is bananas uh mm. it's like Mar marco comes up with what i have codenamed plan tobias's nightmare mm. because tobias can't deal with being underwater 
and this is like an enclosed underwater. They all morph eels and go through the frigging plumbing of of the city to make it into the Yerk Pool, which apparently just has a municipal tap constantly running into it. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's buck wild. You got to get your resources somewhere. I mean, I guess so. It seems like a security vulnerability, but I'm guessing if the Animorphs already had the possibility, like they already had the chance to dump a bunch of maple ginger instant oatmeal into the Yerk Pool, and they didn't, that the Yerks are pretty sure they're not going to get chemical warfare. Yeah, at least not yet. Do we know that the liquid in these pools, do we know whether or not the liquid is water? Because I know it's got Kendrona radiation in it in some manner. But is it just water? Are they just rolling around in water? No, it's got other stuff in it. Um, But I think Tidwell, either Tidwell or somebody, somebody in this book confirms that the the liquid, the sludge in the Yerk Pool is composed primarily of water, and then it's got some other things. Okay. In my mind, I always imagined it as like a Quicksilver-esque liquid, like yeah. really thick and metallic. Like molten but lead and viscous. Yeah. I wonder if that's from the TV show or, or where I got that image from. I think they've described it as a metallic-type liquid before, which is the other stuff in it, presumably. Maybe that's a Yerk excretion. It's making it that way. Oh, yeah, because they have all that mucus, which, oh, my God, the scene of Cassie morphing the yerk. <laughs> I 100% know that there has to be a Junji Ito where someone is just constantly excreting mucus and it's choking them to death, but I don't know what it is. There is. I mean, it's the one with the the grease popping, the pimple popping one. Oh, okay. Yes. Because that's, that's about people who live above a greasy restaurant and are just basically just oily to the point where their blood turns into oil and they have to cut up their own bodies to serve people. It's good. It's body, a good one. It's good body horror, Brent. So this book is another one that has Eric around, sort of, not helping a lot, helping a little. I mean, he, he watches over Axe and he puts up a hologram so Cassie's parents don't see Axe in their stall, in their barn. Uh, but he's not super helpful. Well, I mean, he does act as, like, surgical nurse to Cassie doing the brain surgery. Although it yeah. occurred to me while I was reading this, and I'm willing to just assume that everybody was so harried uh, during the book that it didn't occur to anybody. It It's sort of occurred to me that Arik could probably read those surgery books that Cassie did and be able to remove the gland, the swollen gland from Axe with a, a more steady hand. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Do you think that performing surgery is against their programming? Because it's technically, because you do have to like cut them open. It might be. You might you might accidentally kill somebody and that would cause like an, a, a divide by zero error. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if that's... I mean, I think he still could have been... Like, he still could have read those books and been a little bit more helpful. I don't know. He said the Chi that played his dad was a surgeon in, like, the 15th century. So yeah. I'm pretty sure that they're allowed to murder people by accident if, like... <laughs> if he was doing that, like, professionally. Yeah, that's a good point, because they probably have a much better understanding. Although they're robots, so maybe they don't understand human medicine at all, or medicine in general. Maybe he was just, like down low doing his best making sure to sterilize everything with boiling water and stuff and not actually telling anyone because then they'd think he was a witch and try to burn him and that doesn't work on androids maybe he was actually just a barber 
And he called himself a surgeon, but he never actually had to perform surgery. Oh, nice. So he just like cut hair and shaved beards and like did bloodletting when people asked him, but not enough to kill them because that would be a violation of his programming. I bet even letting blood would be because we've basically Eric has not even been able to like restrain people. Because there was that, I think that was mentioned in this book too, is that there was concern that Axe would run off while he was delirious and Eric couldn't do anything about that. I thought one of the Chi had previously restrained uh, Rachel and Bearmorph, but I might be, I might have made that up. I don't remember that, but it's possible we are 29 books in, 29 plus books in now. Yeah, things, things are getting very muddled in my brain, especially because we drink when we do this podcast. Yes. Also, Eric. Did not mention of himself being famous, but he does mention that even though he's never performed brain surgery, he did help build the pyramids. Well, he always talks about that. That's sort of like his low-key humble brag. He would put that in his Twitter bio for sure. Hashtag helped build the pyramids. Hashtag NBD. Kind of a weird, of all the things to boast about being like a slave in Egypt... I don't know if that would be the one that I was proud of, but I guess I'm not a chi. He's just really into architecture. That's that. I like that. He's happy to have been a part of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else, Brent? Mm, okay, so I did want to mention that uh, when they are in the pipes as eels, they perform an underwater version of the bird parachute maneuver <laughs> to rescue Jake from being sucked down a side pipe. Yeah, they they do like a tail bite chain. Is that right? Something like that. that. Like three of them, like Cassie bites onto Jake's tail, and then three of them bite onto Cassie, and together they manage to pull her and Jake out of the side pipe and back into the main one. And I because Jake's delirious. Oh, he, yeah. he gets struck down with the flu like while they're in eel morph in a pipe. This Bad. flu hits fucking fast. Yeah, so I, I just imagine that in our in our non-existent Animorphs RPG, that uses the exact same rules as the bird parachute maneuver. Yeah, I think so. Just refluffed. Yeah, and then they 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 sort of abandon that mission, which is a good idea, but they do it by navigating to, or I guess they kind of get sucked into a fire hose. Man, I gotta say, <laughs> five eels blown from the end of a fire hose arcing through the air toward a burning building is like a little poem and i love it that line i just i fucking love it it's like a it's a, it's a little poem yeah it's very evocative and and bad this poor eel the eel animorphs <laughs> the eel animorphs the eel animorphs also tobias has been ripping off eels from the back tank of a bait shop when he can't get, like, skunks and, and rabbits and stuff. For some reason, I thought that was very funny. I hope he's been leaving money for those, because the Animorphs don't use their powers for crime, as we learned when one of them was punished for that by being turned into a Nothlet forever. Jesus, God, yeah. Yeah, how how quickly they slip. <laughs> oh, but seriously, this the, the, the tension in this book, just constantly, I mean... I, I really was a little shocked that Cassie's plan of, of demorphing at the bottom of the goddamn yerk pool actually worked because it was so desperate. Every, I mean, that's, yeah, the tension racks up to the point where everything is desperate, but unlike a lot of the Animorph plans, which are desperate but don't need to be, this one was desperate and earned. 
Because yes. there's there's nothing Cassie can do. She has to do both of these things or else e- either Axe is going to die or they're all going to be caught or both. Good. It's a good book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, this is my favorite Cassie book now because it just like there's what I think is the majority of a chapter that's her and Marco talking before Marco like gets sick suddenly. Uh, and I, I always think that the Marco and Cassie friendship is a joy to read. Yes. Yeah, I think this is probably on par Cassie-wise with book 19, if not a little bit better. Book 19 being the one where she's uh, traps herself as a caterpillar. Sure, sure. Yeah. It is weird, though, that when they're talking, um, Marco comes higher in the chain of command than Cassie. Yeah. That seems a little backwards to me because Marco's like a smart dude, but he seems, I don't know. He's lacking Not a certain genetic flaw. Yeah. I, I would say like probably Jake and then Cassie and then Rachel and then Tobias and then Marco and then Axe. If, especially since this mission is about Aftran, it seems like it would make more sense for Cassie to just be the one leading the mission, but I appreciate from a tension dramatic standpoint, it's more dramatic to have somebody else be the leader and then them to fall away. And so so Cassie sort of reluctantly taking on the position. Sure, I can see that. And it it, it sort of makes sense because her and Marco are friends. And, you know, when you're trying to figure out who's in charge uh, amongst a group of friends, it can be hard to step up and say, well, I'll take it and not just be like, well, do you do you want it? You should take it. Maybe maybe you be in charge. Yeah, uh, I, I did like there was at the very beginning of this book where Cassie is getting hassled about Jake not having invited her <laughs> to the dance yet. Yes. Um, and they're they're playing like the desert island game and Cassie sort of half heartedly protests. Marco's not annoying. Uh, well, she starts to say it, then gets cut off. But it, it was just, I, I appreciated that. Because her and Marco, canonically, this is not even, I don't think this is even our more canon than canon at this point. They were friends before this whole thing happened. Yeah, they totally were. And it's good. Yeah, it's, it's a great friendship. It's, I don't know, I, I really like it. I do too. And I, I like that we actually get to see them eating together in this book at the opening of this book. Cause we, we know that they keep their distance at school. So it's not obvious. Like Marco and Jake have their friendship and Cassie and Rachel have theirs and they don't seem to get to hang out as much as I want them to just as like teens. So it, it was nice that they all got to go to the dance together is what I'm saying. Even Axe and Tobias. That sort of obsec might be why Cassie and Jake have only kissed once on the alien planet. I can't believe, I can't believe that they only kissed that once and then just never again. It's, yeah. Silly it's, teens. It's disappointing. But it, it is fun that they decided to bring Axe to the dance. That seems probably fine if there's no food there, I guess. Yeah, I was more, I didn't, I didn't like that they brought Axe. I was more concerned about Tobias because oh. he went to school there for a while and then disappeared but nobody seemed to notice or care. Nobody even recognized Tobias, which is just is hilarious. Sad. Again, we get a little bit of exposition about how he doesn't really remember how to make expressions with his face anymore. And uh, oof, it's sad. I feel bad for Tobias. I do too. I like that he's he's ripping off heels. Like I like that he's varying his diet. 
but still sad. He's gained a lot of confidence. Yeah. Since becoming a red-tailed hawk. (laughs) Uh, What else? Um, I I only had one more thing that I wanted to bring up, and it's that there is a, a scene where Cassie, like, barrels out of the stall where Eric is hiding Axe, and her dad assumes that she was in there pretending to be a horse like she did when she was little and the pretending i'm a horse game is 100 percent cassie that's the most cassie thing i can possibly think of yeah i thought i liked that that felt like a callback to the first book where the first thing cassie does uh, morph is a horse Yes. Because they like Jack, Jake, uh, Jake and Marco come to the barn and they're like, where's Cassie? And she strolls up as a horse. And like, that's, I get it. I, that would probably be, <laughs> if I had access to horse DNA, that would probably be my first morph too. I don't think it's difficult to get access to horse DNA. I'm pretty sure you can order it on the internet. Oh, Brent. <laughs> and that'll do it for this week. <laughs> <laughs> Have we confirmed whether you can get uh, a- a morphing DNA from semen? I don't think we ever will get a canonical answer to that. Uh, you I'm can get good. it from blood. So I'm going to guess the answer is yes, as long as the donor is still alive. Okay, good. I think that that makes sense within the canon as we understand it of Vanamorph DNA acquisition. Thank you for joining us this week, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Next week is book 30, The Reunion. Uh, and actually, or yeah. Next week uh, we'll be doing Mega Sode number three, covering Elfangor's secret. Ooh, what do you what do you think his secret is, Brent? I bet his secret is that he was like banging a mental twelve year old. Mm, I was gonna say his secret is his secret family in on Earth. I mean, same difference. Yeah, I mean, one of them was said in a better way than the other. <laughs> but yeah, I guess you got me there. <sighs> No, yeah, I bet, um, I don't know, I bet, I bet it involves the time matrix. I bet, yeah, I can see that. That that seems like the biggest secret Elfangor actually has hidden away that, that could affect him right now. I bet it involves somebody finding the time matrix. Oh, do you think he, so he, I mean, the book open, the series opens with him being next to Earth. Do we think that this book is, oh, is it, what, where is it chronologically, uh, what do you mean? Like, is this book in in between book 29 and book 30 chronologically, or...? Yes, according to the chronological okay. list on Wikipedia, Megawarfs number three chronologically takes place between, uh, well, according to the list on Wikipedia, and so this is sort of me cheating to assume that it has something <laughs> to do with the time matrix, it takes place chronologically between books 29 and 30, but also in, like, several different years in the past. Okay... So Okay. Yeah, so I'm not smart, actually. That's just that's just extrapolation <laughs> nobody, from Wikipedia. Nobody thought that. Yeah, that's fair. I'm I'm um, glad that nobody had illusions uh, to that effect. Brent, you shouldn't <laughs> let me bully you. You should stand up for yourself. You're a smart dude. Jenna, if if you weren't bullying me, I would be. Okay. Okay, deal. That's fair. <laughs> that works for both of us. Okay, well, in which case, I hope that it, 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 there's some time fuckery that allows Tobias and Elfangor to meet. Because I want Tobias to get answers. Oh, you mean meet again? Yeah, yes. Meet again now that they're both fully aware of who each other are. Maybe this time Elfangor will have a chance to ask something other than, hey, how's your mom? Yeah, 
just like that too. That's exactly how he sounded with his thought speech. I believe it. How's your mom? <laughs> how's your How's your mom? Hey, Tobias. How's your uh, How's your mom? Is she still mentally twelve? <laughs> she's still uh, she's still got a banging bod. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we've, we've reached our limit. <laughs> um, thanks to Dustin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. Um, you can, if you've got questions or comments, uh, you can hit us up uh, at Fandalites on Twitter, Fandalites at Tumblr.com, or Fandalites at gmail.com. Uh, our website is Fandalites.com. And also, we run AndaliteTruth.org, dedicated to exposing the truth behind Andalites not having torsos. So, yeah, really important work. Uh, we hope to have you tune in again next week. And uh, until then, remember, nostalgia is a drug. <laughs>